Welcome to SAS Talk with Kim, your sustainability action series podcast highlighting how local governments are leading the way toward a more sustainable future. I'm your host, Kim Lundgren. I've spent the last 16 years working for and with local governments to help them create resilient, inclusive, thriving communities. I started this podcast series to connect you with the key people on the ground putting sustainability into action in their communities. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to SAS Talk with Kim, your sustainability action series. I'm your host, Kim Lundgren. Today, we're going to talk about a really important topic. We're going to look at the role of race in climate action planning and opportunities to ensure a more equitable engagement process. The ongoing conversations we're having at the family, neighborhood, community, state, and national levels about race and history are providing us a real unique opportunity to start shining more of a spotlight on the importance of equitable engagement in local government. It's evident in KLA's client work that communities of color are not traditionally engaged effectively in conversations about the community's future, are often the victims of environmental injustices, and they are among the most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change due to uh, systemic racism. The KLA approach to equitable engagement relies heavily on partnerships with community-based organizations on the ground, ultimately folks that are representing the folks that they're trying to reach. And that's why I'm really pleased today to have joining me one of my friends and colleagues, Imhotep Adisa of the Kepra Institute in Indianapolis, Indiana. Im and his team were critical to our success with community engagement for the Thrive Indianapolis Sustainability and Resilience Planning process. Welcome, Im. Good afternoon, Kim. How you been? I've been really well, thank you. So for those that don't know, a couple of years ago, um, the city of Indianapolis and Marion County uh, were doing a sustainability and resilience action plan. And this was something that KLA uh, pursued. As part of it, we knew we really wanted to deliver an equitable engagement process as we always do. And as I mentioned, um, Thrive and with the help of him and some other partners really helped KLA refine our equitable engagement process. And it resulted in a reach of over 250,000 people. This was a really imp impressive planning process and equitable engagement efforts. Um, we brought a lot of voices to the table. And uh, my understanding, at least as of the date um, the plan was completed, it had been the most diverse engagement um, the city had had in a planning process. And so this is something we're obviously very proud of. Um, but finding an organization like Kepra was seemingly easy uh, for Indianapolis, but I can tell you, Em, it has not been easy to find the Kepras of other cities and counties around the country. Um, and so I think it's really important for you to share with the audience um, a little bit about, you know, the background on Kepra. What is Kepra? What is your mission? What, who are the communities you serve, et cetera? Sure. Um... I won't say too much right now because that's proprietary. You'll have to send us a big fat donation check to, <laughs> to, to get the secret sauce. But um, uh, we've been doing this work formally for about 20 years. Uh, born and raised here. Uh, the founders, myself, Paulette, and Pambana have um, been doing this work since our children were born. Paulette's originally from San Antonio, uh, lived in Detroit, and then very... Uh, reluctantly moved here with her husband many years ago when he had a, a job opportunity. But with that said, we have actually been just working in community 
supporting our families and our children pre the birth of Kepra in a formal way. Uh, long story on that, visit the website for more details. But uh, we've primarily worked with leadership development, young people in particular using intergenerational format to, to build uh, leaders and using the platform of the social enterprise as uh, the tool in our classroom for uh, helping support uh, young people uh, in their development. Launched originally with my son and Paula's grandson were, uh, who was in Florida at the time, moved to Indianapolis. He came to Indianapolis for the summer, every summer. That particular summer, uh, um, our son, Diop, uh, managed to screw up in school again. And this particular time was the final straw for Pombana. Uh, my wife said, oh, you need to do something with this boy. And Paulette was working at um, another nonprofit at the time. And I was working as a consultant there. And um, <laughs> he had to come to work with me all day, 14, 15 hours, and redo this math class. He had, had managed to fail and managed to beat us to the mailbox about needing to go to summer school. So fast forward, out of that, was the program was born five young African-American males from our neighborhood and our own children uh, came to me and said, hey, we want to come to Kepper and play ball. So uh, that it grew. So here we are 20 years later, uh, multi-generational, uh, multi-racial, uh, uh, gender neutral, uh, just all kinds of community folks who come together to try to address various challenges that we all find in community. Specifically, uh, we live, work in a particular neighborhood that most of our leadership team lives in community. And so the West Side is where we do a lot of our work, but we actually reach across uh, the city of Indianapolis with other young people who live in other communities trying to do the work the way we do it. We use entrepreneurship as the primary lens for this, this leadership experience. And those leadership experiences are tied to identifying challenges in our communities that we want to address. And the, 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 the beauty of entrepreneurship is that entrepreneurs really work out of what are, what is, what are the things I can do where I'm at right now uh, with the resources that are readily available to us. So it just creates agency more uh, perception around what are the possibilities in the midst of what appears to be a very dark moment. So, and that's what we've used from the beginning. I won't go into all the different <laughs> enterprises that our young people have launched in the past. Uh, there are a few that we're working with right now that, that drive it home. And then of course, the areas of interest are four, four E's is how we generally describe it. Uh, economy, environment, education, education, and last but not least, empowerment. Uh, so when you get into Kepra culture, you come to see that there is no challenge that we feel that we can't address. It's very uh, driven through, hmm, what are the solutions here and the challenges that we're gonna figure out how to, how to navigate? And we do a lot of that primarily through relationship building. 
Now, a lot of times folks feel relationships is really soft and not measurable. But we argue that relationships are the most important form of capital in your community. That if you have authentic, healthy, and broad relationships with others, you then have access to all kinds of capital, financial capital or fiscal capital, intellectual capital, cultural capital, um, social capital, and of course, last but not least, spiritual capital, however you define your faith. So our relationship, for example, came out of a mutual associate, uh, Dr. Waterhouse, who was at IU at the time. Yeah. And I think you were doing your research uh, you talk with Dr. Waterhouse and I, I got some folks that on the ground. That's a relationship that connected you to us first and foremost. And of course, our work preceded us. Uh, and then that's how you, other things kind of happen. So the, the tool we then use always in the space with our young people is look at where and how do you build re authentic relationships. And then you do that by looking at the spaces that you're trying to impact. So, excuse me. So prior to uh, our involvement with, uh, with your organization, we really didn't engage with traditional bureaucracies in any major way or regular kind of way, particularly not government level. And we often have, some would say a rather antagonistic relationship <laughs> with power. <laughs> so, so, you know, we, I think some would say that. <laughs> yeah, so, so, yeah, so, you know, we, we we had no problem getting that folks, you know, and uh, speak truth to power. And so uh, your arrival to Indianapolis was actually our arrival into more traditional uh, spaces. In the uh, world. So I want to pick up on something you mentioned, because this really struck me. You talked about authentic relationships and how important that is. And it you know, of course, I couldn't agree with you more. And that's one of the things uh, with the KLA approach and how we're working in communities. You know, I had, I don't think prior to the interview for the, the Indianapolis project, I don't, I can't remember that, that I had ever been to Indianapolis, right? So I don't want to come into a community suggesting I know everything about this community because I don't. And I also don't want to suggest in a proposal that oh yeah, through our equitable engagement process, we're gonna hit this whole diverse group and we're gonna just do it all by ourselves. Uh, you know, in less than a year, we're gonna somehow identify the groups, build trust, build these relationships, right? Like that's just not how it works. And so finding organizations like yours that have already built that trust, that have those relationships are so key. And so one of the things that I think would be helpful for folks to understand is how to best set up those relationships with, with organizations like yours. Now you mentioned for you, it's because, you know, Carlton Waterhouse introduced us. Um, and, and that was actually very bold of him. I had just met him as well. We had an amazing conversation. Of course, we brought uh, Dr. Waterhouse onto the team as well. Um, and I think, you know, I, of course, I always talk about this project and I thought we had one of the most amazing teams I'd ever worked with. Um, but are there other things that you would look out for in a partner, um, you know, if another organization like mine or even another local organization wanted to be working with you all, what are some of the things that folks can be thinking about that would make it more amenable and something that you could do? Because we know you already have so much on your plate. You have your mission, the things you're trying to move forward. 
um, what would be something, things that you look for in a partner? Uh, do they feel good? I don't have to agree with the person, but are they open to at least having a conversation, even if the conversation is uh, somewhat antagonistic at times? Uh, so I would encourage folks to get out of their boxes. You know, often we just want to stay in the spaces that we're comfortable in. We go to the same church, we eat the same food, we listen to the same radio stations. And then our friends tend to actually parrot and mimic the, the same kinds of conversations. No growth, no development there. So you have to have enough uh, courage to say, I'm gonna talk to some folks that, that I just don't agree with. So example, uh, we do these monthly, some pre-pandemic, we would do these monthly community conversations. And we would invite folks in uh, from various spaces that often didn't look like us, white, uh, worked in spaces that we rarely engaged city government. And, uh, and then in that, we were intentionally trying to let folks know, well, you know, we're accessible, you can talk to us. And then out of that build more relationship in those spaces, we might call somebody back and say, hey, let's have a cup of coffee. So um, one example would be a uh, young lady who's working with us who now works for uh, the Chamber of Commerce, actually a community member, care per fellow. And she said, well, she wanna do such and such. And I had met this older white guy uh, at a forum that was going on and he did this whole thing on transit. I said, who's this old guy up here talking about equitable transit? So uh, Stacy said, well, how do we get to that? Said, well, let's call him up. Let's go have coffee. So we went and had coffee, one cup. Then we went back later, had another cup of coffee. And to the day, we still engage each other in, in how do we build relations with each other. And then out of that, at least from our perspective, our end, we then look at, well, where are the places potential collaboration? Now, in order to be good collaborators, you have to understand the animal on the other side of the room. So uh, in the banking industry, they have particular constraints. They have particular ways to play this game. So we're always looking at how can we get our young people in spaces to understand it and then out of that find, uh, out of systems thinking, what's generally called leverage points. Where are the places that we can leverage this spot to get the kind of outcomes we're looking for and maybe even the resources human and others that uh, can move our agenda forward. So in that in that world, then what you wanna do is build relationships with those folks that are gonna potentially be there post the election cycle. And, and so those kinds of things in that space, we intentionally look to figure out how to build relationships that are long lasting in that space. Now, finally, in all of that, we also take the long road in knowing that this is gonna be a long journey of discovery. And so uh, sometimes it's six months in before the folks on, on the other side of the table say, wow, these guys actually know something. That requires a kind of patience that often does not, and tolerance that often does not exist at the community level for a couple of reasons. One, young people not known for being very patient anyway, 
And then two, the race question, which is always uh, in the room and the historical challenge of race uh, uh, in all spaces, even in the professional space, the race question is always looming large and impacting how we can communicate and navigate with each other. So we, we stand really at an advantage because we live, work and play in our own communities. And we've been able to build an organization that's not um, bound by the constraints of traditional resource base. So. And I think there's some really important messages in there. I mean, it's important for folks to understand that if you are say developing a climate action plan or sustainability plan and your focus is equitable engagement, if you haven't laid that foundation before, if you haven't already been building trust and creating those authentic relationships, it's going to be an uphill battle, right? But you can use that process to get it started but it's got to keep going, right? This is not something that, oh, we're going to all of a sudden build trust with everybody and have these great relationships when we have, you know, a nine month planning process. That's just not realistic, right? So it seems like finding organizations like yours, but ultimately making that commitment that this equitable engagement is part of a long-term strategy for the local government um, seems like that is absolutely key. And part of that is tied to the fact that the culture is transactional. We live in a transactional culture and not in a relationship grounded culture. So everything, you, you call somebody cause you're in the midst of a transaction. And uh, we still struggle with that with folks in spaces that we work with and, they, and, and they're struggling with it. They wanna, they wanna not just come together and have a cup of coffee cause there has to be some outcome that comes out of it other than who are you, what do you do? What's your passion? And then allow the, the work, the, 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 the work to come out of the relationship. And uh, it's a very different kind of way to try to approach community change. So, uh, and then of course, the challenge of building relationships uh, is complicated by the, the historical challenge of race in America. Uh, There's now, is the thing to talk about now, racial equity, racial equity, racial equity. Uh, Black Lives Matter. And so everybody's rushing to this space to, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, it's a, a moment of opportunity. But in that, how do we have conversations with each other when there's so much history uh, about the race question that you have to tiptoe around the, the topic? Because if you say something uh, inappropriate, uh, it then breaks down the communication. So White folks are busy tiptoeing around race. Uh, and yeah, I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but try to create an environment that allows us to have these authentic conversations uh, in a safe way that still allows us to, to get at it, uh, even amidst of tension, so. And Im, I know um, you and I had a discussion about this one of the times I was in Indianapolis and uh, I, I wouldn't mind delving a little bit more into it. It is, you know, the topic has become front and center. Um, the, you're right. I think there are a lot of white people tiptoeing around it, not knowing um, the right way to approach the conversation. And I do remember you and I having a very distinct discussion. This was at um, 
a bar or restaurant or something. Uh, do you remember this? You, we were talking about- My favorite place in the pre-pandemic era. <laughs> <laughs> but we were specifically talking about, and of course I'm, I'm from Boston and you're from Indianapolis. And in my mind, it seemed to me that at the time, I should say, in our conversation, it was that, well, for example, oh, you know what? I remember now. It came from the discussion on, um, it started out of the minimum wage discussion. <clears throat> and I remember saying like, uh, you know, this minimum wage in Indianapolis is ridiculous. It's not a living wage. This is crazy. And this kind of morphed into a broader discussion around racial discrimination. And one of the things you said to me that really struck me was you'd rather people discriminate you in front of your face. Do you oh yeah. That? Oh yeah, I do. <laughs> learn yeah. that from my learn that from my mother who's from Canton, Mississippi. Um mm. so <clears throat> yes, it's first of all, we're being discriminated against anyway. It's yeah. not a secret. And uh, uh, it's, it's easier to navigate when it's in front of you. You don't have to hide behind this so-called, we're all fine and the problem here is you don't have enough education or you've got a felony or all these other check boxes that say, okay, da 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 da. You know, let's just, just be real about it. Now, that's not to say I don't want it changed. And that we shouldn't move to change it, but as long as it's it's in the closet, uh, it then prevents us to really getting at how do we bring about structural system changes to to address it. Um, you know, without going too deep in all that, we saw what 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 what, what housing that uh, <laughs> you know uh, black folks get to a place. Uh, of change uh, through struggle. And then the rules just morph around. So um, that makes it even more difficult. And then of course, the George Floyd moment, uh, one of many uh, brought on by uh, the fancy technology called cell phones, uh, then makes it difficult for folks to stand in state of denial uh, as it relates to, you know, the violence, uh, state violence uh, in particular, uh, but just violence related to, to, to racial hierarchy uh, in a more broader sense. So, and I would say the only folks that, that can't see it are folks who, well, you know, pretty much white folks who don't experience it. But the rest of us, it's not hidden. Ain't <laughs> nothing about the, <laughs> there's nothing about, uh, these challenges that are hidden for us, we experience it every day, every day. And um, uh, um, I know we're going to talk about COVID later, but COVID even helped demonstrate it through how COVID has disproportionately impacted uh, uh, black and brown folks. Uh, and, and that's all tied to structural challenges tied to the racial hierarchy. And so this moment, the beauty of this moment 
is that it makes it all naked, very naked and plain. And that then gives us all an opportunity to say, okay, we now all can just, you know, the emperor has no clothes. Let's just figure out what we can do now. And, and, and we have to, I know this probably, it's gonna be a difficult piece to, to resonate on. We have to figure out how to do it together. It, it, it's not, it's, it can't be done in silos uh, around all the various aspects of, of the challenge. Now, the other thing I often say to some of my good friends, uh, black friends, is that, well, yeah, you know, you're right, we're right. Uh, it's not our job to educate white folks. Uh, it's not it's not our job, but it is our problem. So uh, we have to try to figure out how to be patient, how to be t tolerant of missteps, uh, and and try to figure out how to build relationships again. And in this case, across racial lines, that uh, we don't allow the, the the rightful anger and rage we have about our experiences, past and present, to pre prevent us from working with folks who are trying to figure out how to make the world a better place. Hard work. Yeah, but really, really important work, right? Um, oh, yeah. yeah. All right. I know hope you- we, I hope we get it right, but we'll see. <laughs> I hope we get it right too. It really is um, so important, right? It's so important for folks to be thinking about, I, I really prescribe to the, there's one race, the human race, right? And we're all in this together. We rise and fall together and with our planet and all the species on it, we have to be an integrated system. We have to work together with each other and with the resources and other species that we have here. I mean, that is, that is the solution. That is how we were meant to be on this planet. And I'm hoping that you know, with this pandemic, <clears throat> which has been so devastating, um, so many lives lost, uh, so many economies destroyed, lives destroyed. But if there's any silver lining, you know, is it that more people, I know it will never be everybody, but could the majority of people now look at this and really reset their priorities, reset what really matters to them, reset how they treat each other and, and leverage that. I mean, have, you know, of course you're right in the community um, working with, with your neighborhoods and, um, you know, we are seeing strong correlations between COVID responses and, and how we may better position ourselves when it comes to the standpoint of addressing the climate crisis or any big crisis that comes up against us. Why don't you uh, talk a little bit about some of the observations um, that you've seen in your community around the impacts of COVID and if there's lessons learned coming out of it, are, are we heading to, toward a reset? Um, what are the opportunities there? That's a great question. Uh, well, yeah, there, we're in a reset, no doubt about that. Now, the, the, the question is, will enough of us uh, embrace the reset in a way say, hey, this is a great opportunity to redesign and redirect how we engage with each other, how we engage with the broader communities. And of course, that communities being not only the human community, but other species, planets, and earth uh, in very, very broad kind of way. We're not separate from other uh, parts of the planet. And unfortunately, we've become very disengaged from the idea that uh, how 
everything is interconnected on the planet. So we do have that opportunity in the moment and we should move through this moment, not through a, uh, the lens of despair, but the lens of, okay, here we go. Here's the moment we've been waiting for. And because prior to this moment, uh, we would just tinker around the edges. I think we generally call it reform. And so, well, we're just gonna tinker around the edges and then through that tinkering, we hope some other things will occur. Now, this moment also, you've got a tension between what I'll say the reformers, folks who are just trying to reset it back to yesterday and those of us who say, hey guys, this is an opportunity to really bring about some real important and critical changes. As it relates to climate change, reform is not gonna save the planet. It's not gonna happen. Uh, we've seen the challenges we've, we're all, we've had in trying to do things the, the traditional way, not working. There's, there's very little about the traditional way we've approached this that's gonna lead to the kind of critical needs to not only save humanity, but also the other, the other forms of life on our planet. Now, I'm not an optimist. You know, I'm hopeful, but I'm not an optimist. I don't, I don't, I don't live in a space where I think, oh yeah, we've got it figured out. We do this, that, and the other. I just don't have that kind of confidence in um, uh, the human experience. But I will say that that these kinds of crises forces us to become more adaptive and more resilient, and that in that we may actually find some ways to do things different, to live differently and be different about the work. So uh, one of the things we're doing in our space, uh, we live in a, a COVID bubble. Uh, our properties, we got three or four properties on this campus. Uh, and uh, we decided back, I think it was in March, that we would not have folks come into our space. Uh, if they didn't live in the space, uh, we would only, um, uh, have we would have folks that would go out one or two folks we didn't go in the no of course none of no bars no restaurants even when they reopened we have stayed out of spaces that would potentially put our COVID bubble at risk mm -hmm. uh, uh, other members of our community said well we need to do it the way Kepers do it but that those guys are a little on the extreme side but that's the way to go so what we've tried to do here on, on at least in our on this particular campus, not the entire Kepler community, uh, is model uh, a behavior that provides the best opportunities to uh, practice uh, safe living with each other in space. Each week we have a uh, uh, <laughs> we have a COVID uh, update meeting, and it, it gets pretty intense, and then it's intergenerational. So you got young folks who have less experiences and you got older folks with more life experiences and the tension of finding the right balance for, uh, for how do we live in community? How do we maintain this bubble and, and still uh, be somewhat practical uh, in uh, some of the places and challenges? So in, in that, for example, we also set, we, we shut down our, our center, our community center and at this point, we've said, okay, it will be closed through 2021. We're not, the, the center is not essential. We don't need it to, to stay alive. And we want to model 
uh, to community that we're not going to do anything that requires to put our community and ourselves at risk. Now, of course, we're in a position to do that because we don't we didn't we don't need the community center for a revenue stream uh, to keep our to keep our economy going. So those are the kind of things that I think are taking place in our space. One of our uh, volunteers is a researcher, so he's created the COVID gram. So every week he gives, provides a COVID update. Here's what the latest news says on COVID. And then we try hard in our space to always, wherever we are at, any conversations, we do not allow the, the issue of COVID not to be addressed. Mm-hmm. We gotta raise it up. Here's the update story. Here's what's happening. Uh, and then just trying to heighten the level of knowledge that takes place in our own cultural communities that often, you know, we don't like to talk about because who wants to talk about that? Yeah. So, um, so that's probably where we are with that. I'm probably one of the uh, uh, more matter of fact folks about let's work from the worst case scenario. And then of course, Paula and I start our morning with the COVID news, you know, what's happening locally, what's happening nationally and what's happening globally. And then through that, we talk to others in our spaces uh, and just keep that conversation very high on the, uh, the list of, of what takes place what we're talking about in the, in our own spaces. So, um, yeah, ask me some other questions if you want around the COVID question, if you like. <laughs> well, I, I love that you're doing that leading by example. That's so important for the community to see. And, and I know you and I spoke earlier that, uh, you know, like us, Kepra has been so busy right now. Um, lots of folks are looking to partner with you. Your programs are thriving. And so I do think it's, um, it's really commendable that you do take that time to remind folks uh, that this is happening around us. Um, it's important that we're being a leader and that we're demonstrating the right behavior because that really is what this is all about, right? I mean, if, if there's anything COVID is forcing us to do, it's actually think about somebody other than ourselves. And of course, many of you at Kepra already do that. Um, and I like to think the folks at KLA do as well, but for the rest of the world, I mean, those people who are complaining and saying, it's my right to not wear a mask. It's like, this isn't about you. It is about everybody. And how can we protect each other together in a simple, a simple thing, wearing masks, being safe, keeping distance. Um, you know, it, it's, it seems like a really small sacrifice if it's going to help save lives, whether they're lives that you're connected to or not. Um, so I yeah, it is, but it's so that's the biggest struggle. Yeah. And so what we try to do here is, uh, is model like you just said and continue to remind, you know, it's so easy to fall back into, um, um, Oh, behavior. So, you know, we're human beings. And then on top of that, you know, this is a long road. People are tired. And so you just really need community to continue to encourage you and remind you that, you know, something as simple as wearing a mask, practicing good social distancing uh, saves not only maybe your life, but even other folks in your, your community. And then, um, of course, uh, through communicating with each other, you know, we've had folks in our, our community uh, who have uh, uh, gotten COVID. 
Uh, one in particular, a young man works with us who's already knows through our intellectual efforts uh, about practicing good uh, COVID principles. And he decided to uh, actually, I think go to a, he had a party or something, which is what young people do. And then out of that, you know, he, he, uh, he uh, caught the virus. And it, it's impacted him so much about how he had put others at risk. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it, fortunately, no one else uh, con contracted from him. He didn't, of course, he quarantined, et cetera. But it's, it's those kinds of things that we have to keep putting in front of folks in our spaces. And then unfortunately, we have to also uh, make it personal. Um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's tough, it's a long road. And you know, I'm, I'm not confident that uh, we're gonna be out of, the, out of the woods anytime soon. So we're gonna continue to model this behavior. I encourage others to do the same thing. And that if, if it's not essential, uh, uh, don't do it. Mm -hmm. Well, Em, I could talk to you forever, of course. Uh, I love our chats, uh, but I do see that we are running out of time here. So I guess I'll just close with one question that um, the community might be interested in, which is uh, where does the name Kepra come from? Uh, Kepra is a ancient uh, Egyptian or Kemetic word. Uh, it represents renewal, rebirth. Um, the uh, scientists of that, of that era, ancient Kemet, studying nature saw that the dung beetle, which is what you'll see on our website, uh, lays its eggs in a ball of dung. And then it pushes out into the sun. The sun incubates the dung. And then out of this um, waste comes these beautiful uh, winged scarabs. So um, the, the we, we, we use Kepra as the name because it represents what can be created and produced out of what seems to be perceived as waste. Mm. Uh, dung, and so um, that's where uh, the that's the very skinny abbreviated story <laughs> of Kepra and its relationship to the work we do. Amazing. Well, Im, I really uh, first off, I'm just so happy that we were finally able to get this scheduled and, and reconnect. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to maybe 2022 when uh, we are all vaccinated and COVID is not such a risk that we can yet again meet in Indianapolis for coffee or drinks. Hey, I hope all of you really enjoyed this chat with Am as much as I did. Now more than ever, when we're all stuck in our little Zoom windows without much face-to-face -face interaction, it's critical that we take the time to listen to the people in our communities who are truly connected to life on the ground. In those neighborhoods we're trying to reach in particular and getting to those people whose voices need to be heard. As you've heard me say, the last five years or so have really opened up the opportunity for climate action planning to be leveraged in order to address chronic stressors that are impacting a lot of our communities of color and our lower income communities. This is a huge opportunity for our field and I'll look forward to helping many of you continue to do that and supporting you along the way. 
what we're looking to do on SaaS Talk with Kim this year is to invite more of our equitable engagement partners from our client projects and communities to be guests on SaaS Talk to start sharing more of their insights, which hopefully will help you all improve the equitable engagement in your communities. In the meantime, feel free to visit klasustainability.com. Have a great day. Thank you for joining this episode of SaaS Talk with Kim. You can listen to other podcasts in our sustainability action series at sastalkwithkim.com. Remember that action is the key to your community's sustainable future. What will you act on today?